on a revelation of mine. I'm pretty sure I've discovered uh, one of the most tragic ironies uh, in our culture today. And why don't we just go ahead and put this up here. Um, now, my, my mama always said the green never changes colors uh, when talking about the dollar bill. And just an interesting, interesting dollar there. I was looking at this a few days ago, and I uh, was especially drawn uh, to the obvious interesting statement there, in God we trust. Now, th- does anyone else find it ironic that literally on the base paper currency of our entire United States financial system is this phrase, in God we trust. M- my question is, who is we? Like, wh- what is this we that this dollar speaks of? The more interesting thing is, is that this statement is literally on the very thing that is the opposite of the revelation of our trust in God. It's the dollar bill. The very thing that shows how much we don't trust in God is right there. And it's being spent every day and people are spending it all around. And and somehow it's been attributed to a country. I don't understand. To me, it's ironic. A great Alanis Morissette song. Now, you guys are too old for that though, probably. Um, Now now listen, trust. um, Trust is a... a, Largely important uh, subject matter, and I was at the the pool a few days ago, and uh, actually yesterday, and was deeply impacted by something. I want to share it with you. Um, one of my favorite things about living where I live is that I'm close to Blanchett Park, and some of you guys, um, maybe when you were growing up, you were by a park. It's just it's awesome as a kid to be by a park, just straight up, because you have just constant access just to awesomeness, you know. And um, did I have some park props back there? Is that what that was? Nice. Now, in the summer, the great thing about Blanchette Park is there's also this, like, mini Six Flags. It's a pool. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's slides that are tubed in, you know, just like Six I mean, it's crazy, right? Well, uh, this year, uh, Heidi's parents, my wife's parents, uh, bought us a pool pass. Now, this is like a ticket of love. I mean, this thing, it, they take your picture, they put it on a card, and then you just walk in, and you feel incredibly important because you just walk by the attendant, you flash your card, and you're just in. I mean, it's awesome. It's, I just like do it multiple times often, you know, just walk in and out. Um, but, um, and then the other thing is like once you have a family pass, like you feel like you got to get your money's worth. So we're going like two, three, four times a day now, right? And, and, and yesterday, um, yesterday my, my wife had already taken the kids. I got home from work and I was like, you know, we're going again. Let's do this, you know. And, and uh, my kids had just gotten some new floaties. You guys know what I'm talking, you know. The, and uh, my son looks, looked weird in it though. I mean, it's like this. It's kind of this patsy, you know, it's this like big vest around him and, you know, anyway, weird. It's, I, I actually took it off of him after a while. But, um, <laughs> but my daughter, she wanted, she wanted to learn how to jump in the pool. Well, you remember that. Can we take that dollar bill down? That's scaring me. Um, she, she wanted to learn how to, how to jump in the pool, okay? Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, my five-year-old, uh, Avery. Um, she is, uh, she's not a risk taker at all, okay, she, we call her careful Kathy, okay, she's, she's like very pristine, she's very much like my wife, she doesn't take risks, she lives in the box, that's who uh, my daughter is, my son on the other hand, uh, my oldest son, uh, Dawson, a couple weeks ago we were at the pool, uh, he sees a bee, his first thought is, uh, I'm seeing a bee, I should grab the bee, so he grabs the bee, and he literally crushes the bee in his hand, and the bee stings him, and then I can tell because he like opens his hand and, it, and he like brushes it off and then he, show, he points to the stinger and it's literally sticking out of his hand and he's like looking up at me smiling, you know? <laughs> like, that dude is hardcore. That's my son. That's my son. You know what I'm saying? 
Now, my daughter, on the other hand, she's, she's not quite like that. But she comes to me, Mark, Dad, rather, I'd, I'd, ra- I'd like to learn how to jump in the pool. So I'm like, great. So here we are. Everyone's wearing their floaties. I'm feeling kind of interesting about it. But she places herself, like, literally at the place in jumping in the pool where, where she's going to be jumping. It's about three inches of water, okay, uh, which is a, gr- a great danger to her limbs, okay. But, but that's where she feels safe at this point, right. So she positions herself, and, and so I'm there to catch her. And it's no fun at all. I mean, she jumps in, her, barely her big toe is in the water. And, um, but, but, but here's, I, I don't notice it at first. But what starts happening is, my, my little girl, like, jumps in, and then she'll climb the stairs and swim over in her little float, and then she'll walk back out. And after, like, four or five minutes, I, I started to realize what was happening, and I, I honed in on what she was doing. Here's what she would do. She would jump in the water. And then she would swim over to the stairs. She'd climb back out. And then she was making mental marks in the concrete. And then she would position herself three or four inches past where she had just jumped. And so I'm like, at first I didn't say anything. I'm just like watching her do this. She'd get out of the pool and then she'd literally be looking down. And then she would like take a couple steps farther towards the deep end than what she was before. Well, finally, right, she gets to this place of great bravery. She gets to, as she calls it, the vent, you know, the place in the pool where, you know, little kids think it's going to suck them in, you know. She's like, Daddy, I'm not going past the vent. I was like, fair enough, you know. And, she's, and she said, Dad, Daddy, I, I want to jump in by myself. So I was really amped. I was like, you know, finally, my little girl, she's going to jump in the pool by herself. It's pretty deep here. She's not going to be able to touch. And so sure enough, she jumps in. You know how it goes. She gets fully immersed she comes, you know, she takes in a bunch of water in her mouth. She comes out. She's crying. She's wailing her arms. She thinks she's going to die. I'm right there. And, and here's the interesting thing, though. She, she swims back over just how she normally had been. She gets out of the stairs. And she goes right back to the place where she had started. And so I, like, I sat back, and I was, and I can't even tell you, like, there's just moments in your life where like little things become big things. So I had sat here and watched my, my daughter grow and trust and believe. You know, she growing in bravery. And then at the one moment of tragedy, all of this time was lost and she's back to where she started. And so I, I come tonight as we're going to wrestle with trust, relating to that. Come tonight with a heavy heart, with a burden for you all, who probably relate to that too. We feel like your life is like this constant journey where you feel like you're making some headway in trusting God, and then all of a sudden something happens, and you feel like you regress back to where you started. Straight from the power of God's Word tonight, we are going to answer a question that doesn't just come from Christian doctrine, and that's why does trust and faith matter. I grew up in the church, so all my life, faith, 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 just pounded in my dome. And it's so, it's so, it became this like untouchable doctrinal word that I knew what it meant, believing in something that I couldn't see. But it, it's, it feels so distant at times to really grasp why it even matters. And so tonight, straight from the Word of God, I want to answer for you why faith and trust matter. Are you with me? So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. 
We've been in an interesting section of Christian maturity in Hebrews. A few weeks ago, we saw a very harsh statements made by the writer of Hebrews to these Jewish Christians. Then he encourages them by calling them beloved, the only time he uses the word in the entire book last week. We focused last week on speaking the truth in love, that the writer here is clearly speaking difficult truth, but doing it in tremendous love. And now, as he's thinking about faith, as he's in verse 12, talking about inheriting promises, his next thought, as a probable Jew is, is what we see here in verse 13. So let's read 13 to 20, and then we will unpack as we go. For when God made a promise to who? To Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation, verse 17. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's few passages that after I read, I feel like I can just say, have a good night, and this is one of them. Beautiful, weighty, and now we have the privilege of unpacking. So put up verse 13 for me. Two major characters here. God and Abraham. Let's begin from the lesser to the greater, shall we? You need to know who Abraham is, and not just that he had many sons and that he's in some corny kid's song. You need to understand what's happening here. Listen to this. Abraham's previous name was Abram. We meet him first by name in Genesis 11, and then we meet him by calling in Genesis chapter 12. And here's what we know about Abram. He's a pagan man. In other words, he doesn't believe in God. He's not looking for God. God initiates with Abram, shows up on his doorstep. Now, not only is Abram a pagan, but he comes from a pagan land, and that of Ur. And not only does he come from a pagan land, but he comes from a pagan family. He's one of the descendants of one of Noah's sons, Shem. So you have pagan written all over this guy. It's important because it reveals to us who initiates the pursuit of salvation and redemption. From the very beginning, it has always been God. Abraham isn't looking up to the sky thinking, where is God? God shows up, and he doesn't put a multiple choice box and say, shall you follow me? He says, you're mine. And then he starts his covenant with Abram in chapter 12. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you, and I'm going to make your name great. He doesn't say, how does that sound? Should we give each other a high five now, me and you? No, he says, you're mine. You're my kid. You're going to be the beginning of this whole nation, this whole race of the Jews, and you're it. You're the beginning of all this. I need you to understand this because when Scripture starts talking about Abraham, this is the background. He is the father of what? The father of what? Faith for the Jews. This guy is what represents true trust and true faith. Now what Scripture says is this. That God, in his promise to Abraham, had no one to swear by, so he swore by himself. 
well, this is interesting, but what are we talking about? Well, we're not seeing this as it represents itself in the first initial covenant in Genesis 12. Rather, what this writer is quoting is something from Genesis 22. So put this up. I'm going to read this, and if you know your Bible a little bit, Genesis 22 is unbelievable. We're looking now at the end, and I'll explain the beginning here in a moment. Genesis 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Had to be interesting. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Here's the reference. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, how did Abraham obey? Genesis chapter 22, God calls Abraham to take his son Isaac, whom he has been waiting on for quite some time. Calls him to take him up and to kill his son. To sacrifice him on the altar. I don't know if any of you have children in here, or if you don't have children and you at least have a beating heart. This is hardcore. I have three kids. The very thought of God calling me to sacrifice one of my children, it it makes me sick on the inside. But this is what Abraham does. It's not that he just obeys. He follows what God's call is to a T. They're walking up the hill. Guess what Isaac says? So where's the sacrifice, Dad? What does Abraham say? You guys who know the story, what does Abraham say? God will what? God will provide the sacrifice. They get up. Isaac gets tied on the altar, or at least placed on the altar. He can be starting to understand here things aren't going to go so well for himself. Abraham has the knife in his hand, and God stops it. As if to say, you've obeyed me, but you can't sacrifice your son like I will. I will do something as God like you can't. I'll provide the sacrifice. He turns to the thistles. What's over there? A ram. The ram comes up. Abraham sacrifices the ram and spares Isaac. And it's right after that that this verse is quoted. I made an oath with you, Abraham. Remember? I said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great. And so Isaac has to be spared. Now for me, and maybe for you, this seems somewhat attainable. Unattainable, rather. Like this kind of faith and trust. Here, kill your kid. Sacrifice your kid. Everything will be great. I don't know if you're like me, but, but this feels like an incredibly unattainable kind of faith. And, and this was the kind of faith that I grew up with. Everyone was like, dude, Father Abraham and many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Dude was a baller. Like, that was, that was a Sunday school lesson. They put that on the felt pad. Abraham is a baller. Like, that's what they said, right? And I would, like, what it, it makes it unattainable, and it's unfortunate. Because if you know the rest of Abraham's story, you start to get encouraged a wee bit. God calls him in Genesis 12 to go, and he goes. So he trusts, praise God. Very soon after that, though, he shows up in Egypt. 1-800-NOT-GOOD. He decides to lie about his wife because he says that his wife will be seen as beautiful. And he's concerned that Pharaoh's going to... So he lies about his wife. Does that seem like a man who in that moment is trusting God and is the father of faith? No, this man is struggling and he's wrestling. Okay, now that whole situation gets resolved because of God's mercy. A few chapters later, you think Abraham would have learned his lesson. Nope, 
He's still waiting on his promised son. And guess what? His wife Sarah says, hey, my servant girl's pretty good looking. Her name's Hagar. Why don't you go sleep with her and then we'll have our kid. So Abraham looks at his wife, thinks that's a good idea. Looks at Hagar, the servant girl. They sleep together. They birth the kid. That kid's name is what? Ishmael. That's been problems ever since. You know what I'm saying? I mean, is this guy seeming like he's strong in his faith at this point? Again, Genesis chapter 22, I always thought, at least perceived, this is at the beginning of his life. It's not. This is happening at the end. What does this mean? It means that Abraham, the father of the Christian faith, matures in his faith. It means he doesn't start out at the moment of God's initiation and just instantly can sacrifice his son. It means that he is daily maturing, making mistakes along the way, and one day getting to this place of complete sacrifice and saying, I will do whatever I believe. So in that moment, I say, take heart, church. In that moment, I say, be encouraged, church. You at once thought that this kind of faith was unattainable because you thought that you just instantly like, had to get it all. But what happens when you see a person who's this biblical hero whose faith is maturing? Now, one example is great, but how about two? You don't have a choice. His name's Peter. Um, he's, he's one of my biblical obsessions. I love Peter, relate to him a lot. Now, Peter uh, has this strange journey of faith. God calls him. He's a fisherman by trade, which uh, I think we all could agree takes a tremendous amount of faith. I hate fishing because of that very point, right? It's like, throw my line in the water, see if something grabs onto it. Seems like the stupidest sport ever. Anyway, Peter, Peter's called by God, is constantly going up and down in his journey with God. It climaxes right before the death of Jesus when Peter denies the name of Jesus to his servant girl, probably seven, eight, nine years old. Could you imagine a full-grown man who's been following Jesus for three years, looking at a little girl and saying, I don't know Jesus. Now, to say that his faith and his trust aren't struggling a wee bit would be an understatement, right? Now, what happens is Jesus dies. Jesus then resurrects. That's good, right? He resurrects. The scripture records that the disciples see him. And I personally believe it. You want to know why? Because 50 days later, Peter is standing in front of the apostles. And just a few days after that, tells a lame person in the name of Jesus, walk. Peter has matured in his faith. He didn't just start out like rock solid, even though Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. In fact, one time Jesus has to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he's clearly maturing. Now, I don't know about you. For me, this is incredibly encouraging. Because I look at my faith as a complete journey. I mean, I feel like some days it's 10 steps forward, 18 steps back. I feel like other days it's this arduous process. But I guarantee you this, the biblical understanding of these great men of God by His grace are maturing and growing by the day-to-day. You see what I'm saying? So this Abraham, we can take encouragement from and we'll continue to teach on him as the night goes on because I think he relates to you and I more than it first seems. I'll put back up verse 13 for me. Much more to say here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I personally love this. Um, God looks around. He's like, well, want to confirm this thing. No one's on an equal plane as me. I am great. I'm a, I mean, he's looking around. There's no one. And so the scripture says that he swears by himself. It's interesting, Moses, after the golden calf, when God's wrath is burning hot against the Israelites, guess what Moses says? Hey, remember, you swore by yourself. 
take it easy on these Israelites. You swore by yourself. I love that because he apparently, like this, this image of God swearing by himself because of his greatness and his faithfulness has made its way all the way to Moses. I love that. He swore by himself. There's no one greater. And he says, as we've already seen in the promise in verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15 gets weighty here. Verse 15, next slide. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. I think this has multiple meanings. He waited 25 years after the initial covenant in uh, Genesis 12 to have Isaac be born. I uh, have journeyed with some parents who've had a difficult time having kids. One of the toughest things that a, a family can go through. My wife and I, on our first a child, it took us quite a while in comparison, like 13, 14 months. A good friend of ours who's here tonight journey for a long, long time. Imagine waiting 25 years, right? And, oh, and by the way, you're like plus 90, okay? Like you're, that's how old he was. Things aren't, getting, things aren't getting younger for Abraham. So I think it has this meaning of waiting on Isaac, but I also think it has this. God's promises, if waited on, will always come to fruition. Every promise ever communicated by the great God of the universe, if waited on, will always come to fruition. Some here and now, some yesterday, some in the moments to come, and some in the end in glory when Jesus comes back. But they'll all come true, every single one of them. I love what the psalmist says here in Psalm 25. He says this, Psalm 25, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Now, if you could only embrace this last line as a life verse for you, I'm telling you what, you would experience a tremendous amount more joy than you do. For you, I will wait all the day long. What he's saying is, I, I got nowhere to go. You're my hope, you're my refuge. Apart from you, I have nothing. So I will wait all the day long, as long as it takes, to hear from you, to encounter you, to learn from you, to trust in you. The psalmist says, I've got nowhere to go. The problem is, in our impatience, it certainly appears like we've got a lot of different places to go. We're looking in the mirror often thinking, well, surely I can trust in myself. We're looking at other relationships. Well, certainly this seems important. And you know what we're saying? We're saying all those promises that I know you say are going to come true one day, I'm not so sure. And maybe the greatest promise that the church negates is, is Jesus' is very coming back. He said it's going to be like a thief in the night. It certainly doesn't look like we're living very urgently. It certainly seems like there's an urgent disconnect with us. But if every promise will come true, if Jesus will come back, and if it's like a thief in the night, then I'm telling you what, we better be ready. But we're living in lethargy. We're living like it doesn't matter. We're living with a great chasm between us and, and some kind of semblance of humility that's waiting on the things of Christ. I'm telling you, every promise of the Scripture will come true. That's why you need to know your Scripture. And that's why I love you need to be encouraged if you're young in the faith because it's a process. You will grow. Take steps. Learn the promises. What happens here in the scripture is it unfolds for us in a way that's encouraging to help us understand how it's attainable. Next verse here for me. Verse uh, 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. <laughs> now, uh, the Bible sometimes, um, people say, is not relevant. Um, have you ever heard someone say, I swear to God? Right? It's interesting to me how many uh, people who don't believe in God say that. Right? They're the same people that are using the dollar bill and like pimping the in God we trust. You know what I'm saying? It's the same kind of concept here. 
I swear to God. Well, what are they saying? They're trying to bring authority to the statement that they're making. And so to bring authority, they reach out for what they find authoritative. And so isn't it interesting that people would use the name of God in a moment of needing authority, yet they believe him not? It shows potentially that there's something in them that's longing maybe even to believe. Have you ever heard someone say, I swear on my great-grandmother's grave, right? It's like all of a sudden by bringing great-grandma into it who has dentures that somehow that's going to like bring some validity to it all, right? But that's the truth. We bring these things. We're looking for authority, and that's all man can do. We need to look for something greater. We can't in and of ourselves make an oath, make a covenant, make a promise. That can only be done if we look for a greater authority. And that is so awesome when you understand then that it's God who starts every covenant. It's God who withholds every covenant. When you can see it from that perspective, you believe that you can't even begin a covenant. God starts it because he can swear by himself. We can only swear by God and his authority. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why in the court they still have people, you know, put their hand on the Bible. What is that? In the very court where we argue about things that are unconstitutional. And then all of a sudden we bring the Bible into it. Like all of these people are adhering to its authority. So interesting. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that we can seek something greater in the authority of God. And the scripture says here at the end of verse 16, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17 gets pretty interesting here. I'm really excited about this verse. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, one of my favorite passages here, and the staff can attest to this, I've been saying it over and over and over for about three months, is that we're heirs of the throne of God, and if heirs, then we're sons of the throne of God, and if sons, then heirs. And so this is the people, the benefactors of the grace of Jesus. Heirs of the promise. That, like, that's who you are if you believe in Christ. You're heirs of the promise. You will inherit but look at this next phrase. Literally, there are beautiful phrases in the scripture. There are phrases that like just roll off the tongue. This phrase right here has so much tremendous depth. I hope you understand it tonight. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, listen to this, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now, some of you got to college, and um, you came in as a biology major, and then you uh, talked to your friend who had an awesome class in art. And so then the next week you went and talked to your guidance counselor. What do they call them in college? Advisors, people that are called professors. And you changed your major. And then like six months later you realized that that wasn't working out so well. You were like averaging a D minus. And so then pretty soon you became interested. And in some, like how many of you have straight up changed your, changed your major like 10 times, right? At least three. Okay, several of you. Uh, remember when you were a kid, wh- what did you want to be when you grew up? For me, I want to be a meteorologist. I'll claim that. I'll own that. You know what I'm saying? Now, and it's kind of still true because I want to be a tornado chaser in my minivan. You guys know what I'm saying? <laughs> Think of how hardcore that would be. Throw me a radar up on top of that thing. I'll swing that door open like I'm in the army. We'll rock some tornadoes. You know what I'm saying? But you know what I'm saying. I mean, like when I was a kid, first is meteorology, and then you see a fire truck, and then you want to be a fireman, Right? And then all of a sudden you have a, a kind-hearted day and you want to work in a nursing home. And then, I mean, you just, you just like go back and forth. Listen, we cannot even begin to fathom something that's unchanging. It's interesting to me when you do a study of, uh, of other religions, when you study uh, other gods like Buddha and um, other uh, cults and religions, how much 
they seem to even claim victory in, their gods change. It seems so interesting to me in reading some of the, the doctrinal statements, and I use that word loosely, of these religions, whose God seems to like change his mind. Let me put it this way to you. Uh, my marriage, I've been married almost 10 years. Jay, how, how long have you been married, bro? 14, praise God. And uh, Ms. Kearns, how long have you guys been married? 25. You got, is that the most in the room? Just want to, is that the most? Anyone else? Okay. You build your marriage. My wife and I started dating when we were 16. Met her when I was 12. From the moment we started dating, okay, we start building trust. Trust is huge in a relationship, agree? Now what's so interesting, listen to this. As I start building trust with my wife, building trust with my wife, you can trust me. Okay, there was this one freshman girl one time, her name was Chloe. She was, that kind of ruined trust for a while. You know, I, we didn't date, but you know, you have these moments, right? But you're building trust, you're build, don't tell her I said that, you're building trust and you're building trust. <laughs> Chloe who, she'll say. Isn't it interesting that you can build 14, 20, 25, 30 years worth of trust and in one day it all be gone? Isn't it so incredibly interesting that you can work diligently day after day after day and build a relationship on trust and then in one moment of flesh, trust no more? So how is it then that there is a God who is unchanging in his purpose? Listen, who the rug will never be pulled out. That you have the opportunity to trust in something and build a relationship, listen, that will never, ever come back void. As much as I love my wife and as much as I trust my wife, it doesn't even begin to compare to the weight of God's unchanging, consistent nature from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and still now residing in you through His Spirit, there is one purpose that God has. He will accomplish His will, He will accomplish it by His power, and He will accomplish it by His glory. That has never changed. That's been the mantra from the very beginning and will be until He comes back and conquers. Are you with me? And so the, the whole point here is take heart, church. Be encouraged. You have the chance to serve and trust a God who will never change. And though it seems like you have these semblances in your life, you don't. It can all be pulled off. Your boss, you think he respects you? After 45 years, I've heard of guys who one day is just all gone because of a misunderstanding. 45 years of, pour, of pouring in a good friend of mine. And one day, the boss, because of misunderstanding, says, I don't trust you anymore. You're out the door. How about a God who will never do that because he can't go against himself? Now, this just keeps rolling here. Look at this in verse 18. So, because of that, because of God's unchanging nature, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You have hope because of that. That's what he's saying. You have a God who is unchanging, who cannot lie, 
And so because of that, you have hope. Does it look like to me and to you that the church has tremendous hope? Why does it seem like we're cowering in a lack of hope when we have the greatest hope? Let me ask you, though, a series of questions on the topic of lying, shall we, for a moment. First question, no need to write this down. Um, Do you, in your own little mantra and personality and way, have the capability to lie? No need to answer this, and some of you are lying to yourself right now. No, I'm good to go. never lied in my life. Um, Do you have the ability to lie? Second question is, uh, have you ever lied? Uh, This is funny, isn't it? I was talking with a group of friends at dinner a few nights ago, and uh, I always seem to come up with some random topics for conversation. If you ever have dinner with me, it gets really interesting. And uh, so we're all chatting. We're having a great time fellowshipping together. And I, I ask, uh, so when was the last time you lied? That was the question. It's like truth or dare in ministry or something. Um, and uh, what, what was so interesting was, uh, like, as we were going around, like, it's, uh, I mean, it's the moment of truth. I mean, you can't lie now about lying. You know what I'm saying? So one guy was like, yeah, a couple hours ago, you know, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, yeah, remember that conversation we had, like, half an hour before we came? Yeah, I kind of, you know, shifted the truth there a little bit, and, It's interesting how prone we are to lie. What we're saying when we lie, and this is the third question, is just what does lying do? What's the outcome? What we say when we lie is that the truth needs to be pushed to the side, and I'd I'd rather have deceit. That's what we're saying. So anytime that we shift the truth or shade the truth or whatever kind of white lie or whatever it is that you claim it, what you're saying is I'll push the truth to the side because deceit's better. I'd rather not be found out. I'd rather just sit in deceit. Well, um... You can't even fathom not lying. I'm not going to call you out and ask you how many times. You wouldn't even be able to recount the times. My kids, grown in the sinful nature, apart from Christ, have such a natural propensity to lie. So what happens if it's not even possible for God to lie? Have you ever thought about that? Think of how different, apart from God, your nature is from who God is. Somehow, strangely, made in his image, the scripture says, and one day to be perfected because of Jesus. But my friends, you're so prone to deceit and you serve and can trust in a God who it's not even possible to lie. He can never go against his word because it's sunken so deep. And so because of that, uh, what he says is, hey, you should have some hope. I know it feels troubling right now. I know your life feels disjointed. I know it feels like you have a tremendous amount of pain. I know this one relationship seems like it's messing you up. I know this aspect of your life feels like it's out of control. Listen, stop trusting in yourself. You are prone to disaster. You're prone, as the song says, to wander. Our God is not. He can't lie. His word will never return void. His promises will always be obtained and one day completely fulfilled. So the the image here is have hope. Why would you ever run from that God? That's the image. And yet day by day by day, we're saying, you know what? That all sounds nice, but I'll go with my way. Because I certainly feel like having control would be a whole lot better than believing in a God who can't lie at all. Do you see and hear how ludicrous that sounds? But moment by moment, day by day, instance by instance, that's what we're doing. Give me deceit. Give me myself. A God who cannot lie, whose promises will always come true, maybe later. 
He ends with this in verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. I love the image of an anchor. In our culture, I was trying to uh, think about how I could best describe this to you. When you get out of school, when you get out of college, what are you looking for initially? This will be interesting. A, a J-O-B for sure. And then like with a job comes what? A place to live, like a place to reside, okay? Surprised some of you didn't say a wife or a husband. Um, apparently you've already found that. Praise God. That's great. Um, for, for me, like we graduated college, I got a job, and then like to stabilize your life, like you need a place to live. We've had several folks move down here to St. Charles recently, really excited about that, and and like that in-between time, that limbo is, is disheartening because you, you don't feel like you have something that's strong and secure, right? A house. Well, I, I live on a Pine Street. I won't tell you my exact address because you creepers might show up. But, um, but I, I love my house. I love my house. But listen to this. I don't know what the market's going to do. My basement could flood in an instant. And I definitely don't say this lightly. I mean, it. A natural, I'm a tornado away, as we've seen in Joplin, the horrific images there of my house being completely gone. And yet, culturally, that's the best I can come up with as an anchor. As something that grounds me, as something that gives me this sense of comfort and consistency. And yet, here in the Word of God, it says that God, because He cannot lie, because His promises will come to fruition, that that's your anchor. That that's your grounding. That's what holds all of this mess that is you in place. And he's saying again, have hope in that. Hope in that anchor. Don't rest in any of these fleshly things that give the semblance of being something you can trust in because it's only temporary. Trust in this anchor and look at this. Please see this. Steadfast anchor of the soul and now he's shifting gears a little bit. And I'm about ready to get fired up. I love this. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Hold on a second. Now all of a sudden we're talking not about something, we're talking about somebody, you know? Like we're t- we've been talking about the promises of God, now all of a sudden we're talking about somebody going behind the curtain, and that clearly, as he says here, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Well, what is he talking about? It's the curtain you'll know at the death of Jesus that tears in two. Well, what tears in two? It's the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. It's where God resides in the understanding of the Old Testament saints. And when that curtain tears in two because of what Christ has done, the image is that communion now can be had with God because Jesus was what? The for what? Come on. The forerunner. Pratamos is the Greek word. It means this. Interestingly, first, uh, it means like a spy. Like he's like gone in to check things out. So the image here is like Jesus has gone in the Holy of Holies. This is pretty good. You know, like... In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaze the trail here in such a way and just let you guys all know what's happening in here is awesome, you know? And I'm going to make the way for you. Uh, but probably the better uh, rendition for our particular context is it means to go and set an example, to blaze the trail, to pave the way. Jesus has been our forerunner because he went in to the Holy of Holies and has allowed you, listen, he's allowed you to trust in God. Now that seems interesting. Because all my life, it seems like I've been preaching, trusting God, trusting God, trusting God. And it never seems like I've just said, you're allowed to trust God. You see what I'm saying? When you flip it a little bit, when it becomes, you have the grace enough because of what Christ has done to even trust in God. Like, you know, it's like sometimes I'm like pleading with myself and people, trusting God instead of 
you get to trust in God. Like you have the chance and the opportunity, which you don't deserve because of what Christ has done. If you don't understand grace, my friends, that is grace. You don't deserve to even have a chance to trust in a God that cannot lie. And because of Jesus, he's made the way. Now he ends with this, and then we'll move on. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not even going to touch that with the temple pole. Why? Because next week, we'll spend an entire chapter on Melchizedek. Man of mystery, it'll be awesome. Hope you come back. We end tonight, though, answering the question we began with. Why does all this matter? Why does faith, why does trust matter? I think it matters because of this. Put up my graph here. I want you to stay with me here, and I want to be very vulnerable with you, and I want you to, I want you to see what I'm saying here. On one side of this faith spectrum is the origination, the beginning of faith, just the simple reality that God is real. Let me make this clear, though. It doesn't imply saving grace. It doesn't imply salvation. It doesn't imply relationship with God just to say that He's real. Are, are we together? Oh, the Scripture says that Satan believes in, that has a faith in God and shudders. But clearly, Satan is not a son of God. Are we together? So anyone can say that God is real and not believe truly in the person of God and the works of Christ and have experienced grace in that way. But for all of us who believe, that was the point, the origination. God opened up your heart and said, hey, I'm real. And then what happened is like you began to progress and mature. Well, the, under, uh, the other end of the spectrum is what we see in Abraham. Complete life abandonment, complete living sacrifice. I will do whatever. You say it, I'll obey. You tell me to kill my son, this is incredibly hard, but I will do it. That's the other side of this faith spectrum. Now the problem is what I see perpetually gripping us in immaturity are Christians who just like Avery are taking steps from this moment of belief in God and we're growing and we're maturing and we're trusting more and then all of a sudden tragedy hits some relationship breaks up, some job we lose, some financial chaos, somebody dies. And you know what we do? Just what Avery did. We go all the way back to the beginning. We had progressed and matured like we were a six-year-old in Christ, and now all of a sudden we're back on milk like the writer of Hebrews has already said, acting like a six-month-old again. As if none of this ever happened. As if erasing all of these ways that God had showed you how his promises come true. One circumstance in your life. And all of a sudden, you would turn to God and say, no way, I'll have my way again. And you know where that gets you? Right back to where you started. The reason why faith and belief and trust matter is because it changes everything. And here's what I mean. If every instance in my life, every circumstance in my life, every tragedy, every trial, every joy, if it's all meant to build in me a trust of God, all of it, hundreds of opportunities every day to learn how to trust God, then do you see what the tragedy is? It's purposeful. It's intentional. It's meant to be there. So in the moment... 
You say, I'm going to go with the God who can't lie. I trust you. This hurts, and I'm struggling, and I don't know where to turn, but I'm going to keep progressing. I'm going to keep trusting. I don't want to go back here, turn my back on you, and say somehow that you can lie, because he can't. And as much as you want to say it, it doesn't make it true. As much as you would ever turn your own way, it doesn't make your way the best ever. When the tragedy and the trial and the chaos and the hurt and the joy comes up, hundreds of moments every day where God is saying, do you trust me? It matters. It drives you. It changes all of life. And what I firmly believe is then the church starts seeing like and acting like and living like they have some semblance of hope. Why do, we seem so, why do we seem so hopeless, church? Why when people look at us do we seem like we got nowhere to go when we have the only way to go? Listen, listen, I know this is tough. I know it's hard to see the thing that you're in right now and to say, yeah, Mark, but I don't understand how God's got a plan. Listen, that's why he's God and you're not because you don't understand it. You can't see it. You're looking at it from your perspective. And I'm not saying it's easy. But what I'm saying is what we see in Abraham and Peter is this sense that as they mature, listen to this. When Abraham gets to the end of his life and God asks of him to give up your, to give up your son, you know what? I don't even think it's in the realm of possibility that he would say, okay, well, go ahead and daggle Hagar again because I'll go back to that. No, he ain't going back. He cannot regress back there because he's matured past that. You see what I'm saying? He would be like 25, still struggling, and of course Abraham still struggled. 25 going back to 23, not back to six month old. You can't tell me, Peter, after seeing the reality of the resurrected God, and someone, some nine-year-old will come up to him again and say, so, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. He wouldn't even see it as a realm of possibility to deny the name of Christ to his servant girl. That's maturity. time to grow up church and the best part about it is you growing up has absolutely nothing to do with you and everything to do with who God is and that's why I love the message of the scripture because just about when I'm starting to feel condemned and like this ain't possible I'm reminded of one of the great promises of God that his grace is sufficient so uh, Avery as we're walking to the car, she's pretty proud of herself, you know. So her and I and Dawson are walking back, and she says, um, she says, Dad, so what do you think, you know? And um, I, I look at her, and I, babe, man, I'm super proud of you. And, and she ended on the failure, if you will. She didn't go back. That's where we stopped. And I said this. I said, I can't wait to, to go next time. And see how much more you'll grow. That's the love and grace. Of our God and Father. Who looks at all of you tonight. And says because of what Jesus has done. I can't wait to see you grow next time. So no matter how much you've trusted in yourself. 
no matter how much of your faith has been driven by others, there's hope now. Stand together, okay? I'm really burdened by the fact that I feel like a lot of what I see in Christianity are people who believe because they're supposed to. In fact, I would say to you that certainly a large portion of what we see in our Christian culture in America are people who have put on faith on their face because that's what they're supposed to do. And I guess for me, I look at this scripture and I look at all the expectations that are placed on me and I walk away from this text and I literally say this, how could I not believe? Not because I'm supposed to, because I'm a pastor, not because I'm supposed to love the God's word or supposed to communicate it, but I look at that And I honestly say, as a person, how could I not believe in that God?